All right, good morning. Good to see everyone. Happy December, December 2nd. Uh, we're kicking off Advent. If you're new or visiting, just want to say thrilled that you're here. Glad you get to worship with us. Uh, if you're curious as to what's happening, this is a worship service. We worship Jesus in a number of ways. One's by uh, singing songs. That's why we're singing, uh, to talk about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how Jesus has accomplished all that he needed to do in his life, death, and resurrection. We, so we do it by uh, declaring the th- these things verbally through song. We also sit under the teaching of God's word, preaching of God's word, so we might know what God has desired to say to us, how he desires to reveal himself um, to us, and we also worship by observing the Lord's Supper communion, depending upon the background or uh, denomination you came out of. We do not believe this gifts righteousness. We do not believe this in some way increases favor uh, with God between you and him. This is a gift that Jesus gave to the church to nourish us and remind us of the saving benefits of um, Jesus Christ and all that he's done. And finally, we give uh, on the silver boxes on the back wall as an act of worship because God was generous in giving us himself. I always say if you're not a regular attender or member, uh, we're not interested in your funds. We just want you to know Jesus, love, serve, worship, adore, and enjoy him. Um, I'm going to give you a quick announcement before we head into Advent. Remember, this is uh, where we're going to be reciting together, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So hopefully you came. Uh, 5 and 6 is what we're going to be kicking off with. Before we get into that, just want to let let you know this year, we're going to be having a Christmas Eve Eve service Sunday, December 23rd. We're going to celebrate Christmas Eve together as a family. Bergen kids are going to be uh, a part of the service. going to be a great time. Note the slight change in times for that 9 and 11 a.m. Uh, that'll give us more time to transition between services uh, because all the priesters show up, uh, the Christmas and Easter people. Okay, took you a little while. So they're all going to come. They're all going to show up and we're going to make room uh, and also transition well. So I want to do those two services well. So mark that down on your calendar. Um, I am going to pray and then we're going to recite Philippians 2, 5, and 6. If you got one of these cards, this is for you this month of Advent as we memorize this text and passage of Scripture as a church uh, just so that it might embed itself in your soul. We know the Scriptures don't just encourage us to read them but meditate on them, internalize them uh, so that we might, might more fully understand the weight of the text and walk more rightly in light of that. So we figure we give this to you to put in your purse, pocketbook, on the dash of my car. I love putting verses I memorize right there so I can see them as I drive. Um, so I don't know, I guess that's funny. I didn't, I didn't know that was funny. <laughs> Apparently that's comical. You're all pagans. All right, so let's pray. Let, let's, let's pray, and then we're going to recite this text. All you people think it's funny, you're all doing it this week. I know it. You're all going to pull in, have a little cards on your dash. Thought the pastor was weird. You're weird, all right? So let's, let's a little family conversation. All right, I am getting off the rails. We're going to pray, and then we're going to recite this text because it's good. All right, Father, thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that we have your word. Thank you that we can know you that you've revealed yourself uh, through divine revelation, not human speculation. God, thank you that we can trust what you say. Uh, Would you lead us into this Advent season in a way that's fruitful, helpful, meaningful? Uh, We would see Christ more beautifully uh, today than when we walked in this room because we've been together, because we've sung, because we've sat under the word of God together, because we've tasted of your goodness and all that it means for your coming and in your future second coming. Uh, God, as we internalize these scriptures, might they bear fruit in our marriages, in our singleness, in our work, in relationships, in the ways we handle and walk through burden. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Servant King. So Philippians 2, we gave these cards. So look, listen, if you're walking in right now, you're like, hey, I know we're supposed to memorize anything or say this chant. Not a chant. It's a, a scripture verse. I believe it's God's word. God's word encourages us to internalize it. So that's okay. You can cheat and read off of the card that you uh, had. If you did memorize verses five and six, I encourage you to resist temptation uh, from looking down at your card. Uh, and we're going to say this together. I want you to know 915 crushed it. Uh, so they're way more spiritual than you right now. So we're going we're gonna to see uh, kind of where you land. So I'm telling you, everyone showed up with a memorized, couldn't believe it, pastor of little faith. We're going we're gonna to get into Philippians 2, 5 to 11, but let's say verses 5 and 6 on the count of three, okay? Some of you are sweating. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay if you miss a word, man. It's all about progress. It's supposed to be hard. So one, two, three. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Amen. Way to go. Okay, you guys, you guys were close. You're close, all right? You're equal. Um, good. So we're kicking off Advent. We're going to add verse 7 next week. Okay, we're going to preach verse 7, just that text next week. So uh, that's where we're going to be the next four weeks in Philippians 2, 5, 2, 11. So we're kicking off Advent. Normally, we, we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line. But, but right now, what we're doing is we're taking a section of Scripture to see a theology of Christmas. And in case you're wondering, Advent, if that's even new to you, Advent literally means just the arrival of, the arrival of a notable person, someone in, in human history. We, we see the most notable, most influential, most profound person who ever existed uh, in Jesus Christ. And, and his advent came, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, through the virgin birth, um, his mother Mary, and we see a lot in this. And so what we're doing is we're, we're reminding ourselves of what happened in Advent, and we're also anticipating the second Advent, which is the return of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to be in Philippians. Philippians 2, if you have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. If you didn't grab one, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And here's what Paul's been doing. Paul has been unpacking for the Philippian church, church that he helped plant and start. You can read about this in Acts, a church that was growing, expanding. And he writes about how Christ is in all things. How no matter what you do, what you talk about, whether it's joy, love, forgiveness, unity, humility, he's bending into humility here in chapter two. It all circles back to Jesus. If you don't get Jesus, you miss everything. He's the center and cornerstone of your Bible. He's the reason the Old Testament points to. He's the one the New Testament points back at. He's the one we worship. He's the one we're founded upon. He's the one who ultimately and finally and fully, you'll see at the end of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, gets all glory, praise, and honor. So um, Paul is winding up here, this, this talk of unity, this talk of humility. And he wants to show how it all leads to Jesus and his person and work. And so um, here he identifies Christ, and then Christ has become the theme of the next few verses. So let's look at it in its entirety first, verse 5 through 11, so you can see where we're going the next four weeks. Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, so here, here's what we got. In these, these six verses that we're gonna walk through the next four weeks, right, taking a couple verses at a time, teasing out this, this theology of Christmas. If you were to kind of look at just the bookends, here's what you get at Christmas. Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord. All right, that's, that's the story of Christmas. That's the meaning of Christmas, that, that he was fully God and deity. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the Son, Jesus Christ, and it ultimately culminates to this doxology, this worship in every knee's gonna bow, every tongue's gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you're wanting to track the next four weeks, we're doing divinity today. We get into his humanity next week, then his humility the third week, which culminates in doxology on Christmas Eve. All right, his divinity his humanity, his humility, and his doxology. That's where we're going. And so, so here, if you just look at this text right here, this section of Philippians is explaining the humility in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who comes to earth to die, defeating, defeating Satan, sin, and death as our substitute in our place, rising victorious over it all, gifting us his spirit, spirit willing to adopt us into his family and reconcile us to God the Father. And so you'll see it returns in exaltation and glory, right? So it starts with Jesus is God, ends with Jesus is Lord. And here's what you're getting. You're getting this theology of Christmas from the divine perspective. That's what Paul's given you. It's not just from our human vantage point, kind of God and us, but God looking down behind the curtain, so to speak, at the story of Advent and the Christmas theology. We're gonna look at verses five and six today. Here's what this says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, first thing Paul says is, have this mind among yourselves. What's awesome is out of the gate is you can have this mind. He wants you to think this way. He wants you to believe this way. He wants you to understand things this way. When you become a Christian, uh, you get the mind of Christ. You get this union with Christ. The scriptures speak about how he, he indwells you through his Holy Spirit. He, he speaks through you. You have a resident truth teacher where he begins to conform your thoughts, emotions, desires, wants, proclivities. He is now aiming you towards Christ where all your satisfaction, all your joy, all your life can be found. It's the best news in the universe. Not that you can be a tweaked old version of your old self, but you're a new creation with a new mind and a new heart, right? That's the message of the gospel. If you have heard anything else, it's terrible news that you just get to be more moral. You get to be a better person. You get to clean up your life a little bit. That's an awful message. That's not a gospel. A gospel is you are transformed. You're made new from the inside out by not yourself, but something outside of you, that thing being Jesus Christ. So he says, man, when that happens, have this mind now. He's telling the Philippians, you can believe this, understand this, think this way about the advent. So he wants you to get. And Paul says, and what he does, he kicks off identifying Jesus's person, his nature, his character, his attributes in eternity before he ever came to Bethlehem. See what he's doing? He's showing you his divinity, his deity. And that's why Paul says here, though he was in the form of God. Now that, that word form means exact essence and nature, right? It's, it's all that God is, right? He possesses all attributes, all essence, all characteristics that belong to God. He's no less God than in the fullest sense. It's not God the Father, then Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit. He's kind of the stepchild that we somehow, sometimes let in the house. Like, no, he is all God, Trinitarian, one God, three distinct persons in fullness. It's the God of the scriptures. 
That's the God of the Bible. He wants you to get before Bethlehem, man. This is Jesus in his deity, divinity. He was in the very form of God. He had the exact nature and essence. Uh, Just in case you're wondering, did Jesus say this? This is why in in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, I think it's verse 18, right? The, The religious leaders are condemning him. Why? It says they fundamentally condemned him because he was claiming to be equal with God. So you're like, well, I don't know if Jesus believed that. He did. Says it, right? In John 5. He claimed to be equal with God. That's why there was so much aggression towards him. This is why Matthew's gospel says, hey, you're going to give him a Hebrew name called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. He was God. He is God, will always be God. He is Emmanuel. This is why John 1, John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The word was God. It wasn't just off to the side. It was literally in essence, nature, that being Jesus Christ. He was God. This is huge, necessary for us to understand and believe. That's why Jesus in John 8 tells the Jewish people, hey, before Abraham was, I am. He's before Abraham existed, I existed eternally. That's who I am. But then in verse six, even though he's God, even though he possesses all eternal attributes and characteristics that belong to God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This God, who's the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's not talking about grasping for understanding. Like, it's not Jesus going, man, I don't really know what it's like, so I'm grasping, what is it like me being equal with God? He was. It was exact essence in nature and character. He was equal with God, so he is, he is try, it's something else here. He's not saying Jesus didn't understand what it was like. He's saying that he didn't consider it something to be held onto for his own benefit alone. It's the most insane picture of humility you'll ever see. No one will ever do that because no one's God. Yet he did not consider it something to be grasped. Now, I want to chat about this for a minute because that's a very interesting statement. And also that verb, interpretation-wise, holds a host of possibility in interpreting that text. So I'm going to give you two and talk about which one Paul's talking about. It can mean two things. It can mean to grab hold of something and pull it away, grasped. Or it can mean you cling to something. So let's look at the first, uh, in the way of grabbing hold of something and, and bringing it to yourself. Um, you've got, if you're familiar with your Bible, in Isaiah 14, it speaks about this guy Lucifer, who will later be Satan, the devil. Uh, he is the worship leader of heaven. He is the anointed cherub. He is the highest of angels. And, and he what? He says in Isaiah 14, I want to be like the most high, right? I want to be equal with God. And he can't, right? So he gets kicked out of heaven, right? And, and that's where he becomes the devil, Satan. And what, what's, the, what's the problem there? He was trying to, to grasp something. He was trying to cling to something to make it his. Now, now, Jesus doesn't need to do that. Jesus doesn't need to try and be made equal with God because he already is in his exact essence and nature, which is what Paul just said. He's in the very form of God, right? But, but here's, here's the other one, because Equality with God was not something Jesus needed to grab hold of and take. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is the other way to understand this is it was not something he clung to with like a death grip. This is what Paul's talking about. 
He possessed a quality with God, but he was willing to release some of it. And here's what I mean. It wasn't something he had to hold on to. It, it's not that it wasn't something he had to grab hold of because it didn't belong to him. It did belong to him, but he was willing to give it up. You're going to learn next week. This is why he empties himself, takes the form of a servant. Now, what is that though? He's not releasing deity. Like, like he's, he's not, he is fully God and fully man. Where he's not releasing or emptying or letting go of deity. When he was on the earth, he was the fullness of God pleased to dwell. Colossians 1 is really clear about that. We'll get there in just a second. But, but here's what he's getting at here. This is, this is so, so huge. He, he couldn't empty himself of his deity because he's already that in his exact essence and nature. So he didn't change that. He empties himself of his divine glory. In the world, it was veiled. This is why in John, he says, Father, would you give me the fullness of my glory that I once had? That's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, what you see him pull his flesh back a bit just so they could see just a, a glimpse of his glory. So in this world with Jesus, there was a, an aspect of his glory that was veiled. Right? We know this because Timothy says, man, he's a God that stands in unapproachable light, man. You'd be incinerated if he was in full glory as he walked as the person of Christ. Right? People walk by and go, I mean, you just wouldn't even be alive. Right? I mean, you, you wouldn't exist. Right? You needed to be able to contain the godness of Jesus while also enjoying his divinity and glory. And of course, only God could do that. God could create that. This is what he, he does. He, he gave up use of his omnipotence, did he not, at times? Right? When, when he was on the cross, like, hey, and they're mocking, say, hey, hey call down a, a legion of angels to rescue you. He could have, but he withheld that divine attribute. He did not exercise it, right? That's the way that he operated in this. But I want you to feel the weight of this because if we're not careful, we're talking about Advent, Christmas, you see a bunch of nativities. You might have one, it's great, no judgment, but, but you, you have these nativities you see and you can just program pictures and images and right, as to how you think about Advent. And, and I want to feel the weight of this because he says he's equal with God, the very form of God, and he releases an aspect of his divine glory. It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I want you to feel the weight of what happens in this Advent. Jesus is God. And here's the thing. There's this interesting text in John 12. John 12, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about there are people who saw the miracles of Jesus, and they didn't believe in him. Then there were other people who saw the miracles of Jesus and they did believe in him, but it says they did so secretly to avoid persecution. That's why they, what they did, right? But, but, but here's what's amazing. In the middle of all that, he's talking about Jesus. He brings up Isaiah. Isaiah is 700 years before Christ. And he's talking about Isaiah. And look at what he says in, I think it's verse 41 might be on the screen. Uh, in the midst of John talking about Jesus, it says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things, these things about people believing and not believing because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So, so it says Isaiah said these things about them not believing because he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. It's insane. Like, what do you mean he saw the glory of Jesus Christ? I mean, this is Isaiah 700 years before Christ came. 
What is he talking about? And yet it says that he saw Jesus in his glory. If you look at Isaiah 6, he sees the glory of God. Now listen, everyone at the, old, at the time reading the Old Testament would have thought it was God the Father. But, but John gives us this amazing window into it. it wasn't God the Father he was looking at. It was Jesus Christ in his full divinity and his full glory, his full Philippians 2.6. It's insane. Look at Isaiah 6. John's explaining it's Jesus sitting on the throne. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, Isaiah sees the glory of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 6? Like this, see, see, here's why I say this. I mean, get, get, get out of your head all those images of, of in nativity yards, of like Jesus with long hair holding sheep. Okay, like, like just, just get that out of your head. The truth is, yeah, he was here for 33 years, but he's been in eternity for eternity. So, so this is maybe a much better way to kind of think about him when you think about the advent, right? And he definitely wasn't white, okay? He was Middle Eastern. So you gotta get, gotta get rightly how you think about Jesus. So Isaiah says, man, this is Jesus, Philippians 2, 6, pre-advent, pre-Bethlehem. And he says, I, I, I saw him, and, and, he, and it was like he was sitting on a throne, man. It wasn't this little tiny throne, have a little scepter. Like, man, this is like king of kings, right? Lord of lords. He's not wondering if he can exercise authority, man. He is in full authority. He's got this robe that fills the whole temple. Man, there's no president. There's no king that, that looks anything like this. No king. I don't care if they're in Persia. I don't care if they're in Russia, China. They don't have a robe that fills the temple, right? They got one that hits their feet. And trails, maybe a couple feet, right? This is, this is amazing imagery. And then you got these beings that are, that are perfect. And yet they have to shield their face and their eyes a bit because his glory is so magnificent. And they just can't shut up going, holy, holy, holy is Jesus, is the Lord God Almighty. There's this amazing picture of his glory here. I mean, this is incredible. You're so holy. You're so holy. Guys, that's Philippians 2, 5, 6. Though he was in the form of God. Wow. This is our Jesus that, that's going to come and put on human flesh and leave his sovereign position to say, take a slave's position to, to, to empty himself and bear the weight of sin and live an obedient life and die as our substitute in our place and, and rise. This is the one that's going to incarnate on Christmas. You got to know who he is before Bethlehem. That's what Paul understands. You got to appreciate Advent, Christmas morning. You got it over verses two to six. I want you for a minute to flip two pages to the right in your Bible if you're in Philippians 2 to Colossians 1. Because Paul's going to give you the same testimony in a different way. So you learn about the scriptures. A lot of things are said that are repetitive, but in a different way so that you get it. That's why the Bible won't shut up about Jesus. So that you'll get it. He's the hero. He's, that's why a lot of you go, man, every time I come in, sermon's the same. It's about Jesus, sin, he's awesome, we stink. I know, praise God, you got it. That's, that's all you need to know. And you're gonna hear it a different way each week. You're gonna hear it in a different text each week, from a different angle each week. But man, trust me, man, you got nothing else that you have hope to put yourself in. 
Maybe I can't leap boosting up you. When you leave, you'll be a train wreck this week. The more you live as you being the center of your universe, the more miserable you become. So you need someone else to be the center of your universe who's Jesus, who's perfect for you, who loves you perfectly, accepts you perfectly, forgives you perfectly, has you, holds you, adopts you, all those things in the infinite ways that he can so that you're free to enjoy, love, and worship him. So if you don't have that, you're a train wreck. I'm a train wreck, okay? So getting back to the text, he's gonna say Philippians 2, 5, and 6 in another way that helps us get into the depth of what he's saying. Look at verse 15. And by the way, in case you're wondering, he just finished a rant about Jesus, okay, in chapter one. Gets to verse 15. He, he's speaking about Jesus still, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Paul gets to the Colossian church, a different church, says the same thing he's saying to the Philippian church in a different way. This is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. That means he is a direct representation of, a direct reflection of the invisible eternal God that you cannot see. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how he behaves, if you want to know what, what brews his aggression, if you want to know where he shows compassion and mercy, if you want to show what just lights him up in delight, you just have to look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at the image of the invisible God. You don't have to speculate. You have to look at Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God, Philippians 2.6. Now, how does this theology walk itself practically? Just for a moment. How does understanding his divinity, him being equal with God, knowing that you see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, matter for us, especially as we think about Christmas and Advent. John 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And if you know the story, right, the religious people, they bring a woman caught in adultery and they throw her in front of Jesus. And they all say, hey, according to the law of Moses, you should stone her because she's an adulterer, basically what they say. And Jesus, you got to love Jesus. He just starts bending down and drawing in the dirt. Now, no one knows what he drew. Everyone wants to know what he drew. It's not the point, okay, of the text. Everyone, every commentator, what did he draw? He could have drawn a pony. Doesn't matter what he drew. He's in there drawn in the dirt. Then he looks up. He says, uh, if any of you haven't sinned, man, you can throw the first one at her. And then he goes back to drawing in the dirt. <laughs> and what does it say? From oldest to youngest, they start dropping their stones and walking away. And then it says he walks over to the woman and he picks up her face and he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, what flies off the page? What flies off the page is that Jesus extends mercy in the face of blatant guilt. He doesn't like say, oh, we'll find a way to say it didn't really happen. It wasn't really a sin. You're not really in trouble. In the face of blatant guilt, he shows mercy. What are you seeing? You're seeing the deity of God. Like you're seeing the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Scandalous mercy. Grace, it doesn't make sense. Him letting her off, knowing, man, I might get publicly shamed, naked, stoned to death, and he shows mercy. You have to feel the weight of that, man. That's why I'm always encouraging to get in the Gospels and just read about Jesus and look at his life and look at the things that he says and how he acts and how he behaves because you're looking at God. 
You're looking at the invisible God. I thought about Luke 19, Zacchaeus. He's not a good guy. He's a guy who's being used to oppress the the Roman citizens, right? Because they're hiking up taxes to, to oppress the people, to increase Rome's authority. So anyone who knew Zacchaeus, he was not a guy that you liked, not a guy that you wanted to celebrate, not a guy that you wanted to be around, let alone not a guy you wanted to forgive or show mercy to him. What happens? Um, he wants to see Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to see him, which is why he shimmies up the sycamore tree. Now, you probably got that song in your head. Just stop saying it in your head. It's so annoying. I grew up with it. But, but, but he shimmies up the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I know I can't help but say it. Right? So, 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 so he climbs up the tree. He's looking. And I love this. Jesus is walking down the road. And I wish, you, I wish there was other, I wish we got insight from Luke into like what else happened here. But, but I, I really feel like it's Jesus is like, hey, get down. Like doesn't even look at him. I'm omniscient. I know you're up there. I hear the trees bristling. I know you're hiding behind leaves. Get down. We're going to chat. And he basically says, hey, Zacchaeus, come here. We're going to your house. Now, when Jesus tells you you're going to your house, you're going to your house. Doesn't matter. You can't, you can't debate. You can't dialogue. He'll teleport you to your house. Like you, you have no way to withhold his call. So he says, get down, go to their house. They discuss repentance. They discuss the gospel. Jesus says, salvation has been found today in this house. What flies off the page that that, that he goes after, that he pursues, that he initiates, that he is an Advent God, that, that he's not waiting for people to come to him. He goes after you in your rebellion and sin. He goes after you as an oppressive, brutal, illegal worker for the Roman state. And when no one else wants to talk to him, he says, no, you're going to get saved. You're going to get grace. You're going to get mercy. You're seeing the heart of God in Jesus in Luke 19. John 11 is another great one. John 11, you got Mary and Martha, and they have a good friend, Lazarus, who is ill and about to die, and they know he's about to die, so they go, man, you got to tell Jesus. You got to bring Jesus, but it's like a two-day journey for Jesus, so Jesus gets word. Jesus comes, and he's not at the tomb yet. He's almost to the tomb, and what happens? Martha, I think it is, comes to Jesus. She's broken. He's dead. You're too late. So then, then he goes to the tomb where there's crowds and they're broken and they're bleeding with pain. And it's so interesting what it says in John 11. He starts weeping. God starts identifying with brokenness. Like he doesn't explain the grief away. He just starts weeping with them in the brokenness. Like you, you see unbelievable compassion that the God, God, Isaiah 6, Jesus, like, like, like walks and wants to not just explain away your grief, but he wants to walk with you and weep with you in your sorrows. That he's a Hebrews 4 high priest that can identify with every weakness of ours. He never sensed you can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find help in time of need. Praise God, he's not one who's abstract and hands off and not wanting to be involved. The Advent shows us how involved he wanted to be. And you get pictures of it by looking at the image of the invisible God who was in the form of God. 
Last one, Luke 8. You see the power of God in Jesus. I mean, he's out on a boat with the disciples. The windstorm kicks up. (laughs) He's sleeping. It's so great. Luke 8, go read it today. And they're like, Jesus, you got to wake up. And so Jesus rolls over, wakes up, yawns, stands up, looks at the storm, rebukes it through the word of his power, and goes back to sleep. (laughs) I mean, he's the author of creation. It's like, okay, it's calm. I'm going to go back to my nap. I'm going to enjoy my humanity here. What are you seeing? The disciples were seeing the omnipotent power of God through looking at Jesus. That's what they were seeing. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. Now, we could go on and on, but this is Philippians 2, 5 and 6. But Paul also notes something else that you can't miss in verse 15. He's the image, Jesus, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is a shadow of Philippians 2, 6. Now, listen, you got to understand this text here. He's not saying Jesus was a part of the created order. He's not saying that Jesus was made. He eternally existed, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. It wasn't God the Father and the Holy Spirit sitting around the campfire one night going, you know what? You know it would be so much better if there were three. We should just make a third. It wouldn't be so confusing. Right? They didn't do that. They didn't do that. He, he eternally existed with God. Now, now, here's what's amazing is Paul's appealing to the sovereignty of Jesus here. Because that word firstborn is prototokos. I know you don't care about Greek, so just know what it means. It doesn't mean that you are made. It means you have received every bit of essence and nature that the Father has. He's the firstborn. He's the prototokos. He's preeminent. He's sovereign. He didn't need to be created. That's what he's saying in this text. So where the Jehovah's Witnesses get off, they say that Jesus was made. That Jesus was created. See, it's his firstborn. That's not what firstborn means. That's not the word there. The word there is Jesus is preeminent over everything. This is why Jesus says in John 1, I and the Father are one. We're the same. That's why Paul just said in Philippians 2, 5, and 6, he's in the form of God, and he didn't count equality with God. That's why he just said in verse 15 of Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God. And he adds on the firstborn of all creation. Paul's laying out that Jesus is prominent over all things created. See, you can go outside after the service and go, stop raining, and it's not going to stop raining because you ain't the prototokos. <laughs> you ain't him. Jesus can walk outside and go, stop raining, and it stops. Be healed, and you're healed. Be saved, and you're saved. Be forgiven, you're forgiven. Let there be light, there will be light. Jesus can do it, because he's the firstborn, he's the prototokos, he's the sovereign one, he's preeminent over all creation. He was with God. Let us make God in our own image, Genesis 1 and 2. He was present, he was there. You have Hebrews 1 verse 3, he's the exact imprint, the radiance of the glory of God. <clears throat> okay, so he, he says something else here in the next verse. Just in case you're not sure you get that he's the form of God, that he's full divinity, that he's all things God. He says in verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. (laughs) Paul's just taking a jab at Caesar. Caesar's the king. 
you read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, it says nature is over all things, in all things, and all things circle back to nature. And Paul says, not quite, Caesar. There's something above creation. There's something preeminent. There's something, creation's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. He's the prototokos, and he's the one who made everything. And all things exist to point back to him. Amazing. He says this. Creation's not ultimate. Creation serves something higher. Creation serves Christ. Creation exists not to terminate on itself, but for you to not worship creation, what's been made, but through seeing what's been made, worship the one who made it. And as you worship Jesus, the prototokos, the preeminent one, the sovereign one, your joy is full, your heart is satisfied, you're content, addictions are severed, you're able to walk in the ways that God has established and demanded and created. You're freed from yourself to enjoy him as the preeminent one, the one who is God. And just to make sure nothing gets left out, Paul adds one last word, verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Christ Jesus, the fullness of God is made visible. What? The fullness of God is made visible and the fullness of his deity was put in Jesus and it pleased God to do that. What? What? I mean, are you, it's just in all the powers of deity, all the fullness of essence, God's glory. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. So if someone comes along to you and says, I'm God, be like, no, you're not. Don't listen to them. They're loony. There's only one, and it's Jesus, only one where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Only one who's in the form of God. Only one who's a quality with God. Only one who's the exact imprint of his nature and radiance of his glory. Only one who I and the Father are one. Only one who was before Abraham, I am. Only one who testifies from his own lips in John 5. Yeah, I'm equal with God. There's only one. There's no rivals. There's no supplements. There's no more revelations. It is all bound up and full in Jesus and Jesus alone. His own deity was put in him. Why? Because it just pleased God to do it. Yeah, you can, I mean, it's good news. So, so some of you have a pulse this morning. So, so Advent, Advent, circle all the way back to Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Why does this matter? Right? Why does it matter that you get verse 6 before you head into his Advent? Well, this is a part of his Advent. It's not separate. Well, why does it matter? I'll give you three things. Number one, Philippians 2, 6 matters because if that doesn't happen, Advent doesn't mean anything. That's why Paul starts you there in verse 6. If he is not God, if he is not the fullness of deity, you have no hope of Transformation. You have no hope of forgiveness of sin. You have no hope of reconciliation with God. You have no hope of being delivered from your addictions, proclivities, and sin, and frustrations, and discontentment. You have no hope at living a life that is truly all satisfying. You have no hope for any of that. 
you have no hope. I mean, in Philippians 2, 6, Paul's talking about Jesus and his deity because in order for Christmas to matter, in order for sins to be forgiven, in order for Jesus to have the authority that he'll bring with him in the first advent, he cannot simply be a good man. He cannot simply be a good teacher. He cannot simply be a rabbi. He cannot simply be just a prophet. He has to be God. Like he has to be. Like who cares about Christmas if he's not Philippians 2, 6. Like he can't empty himself of anything. He can't hold any good news. He can't show up on Christmas morning through the virgin birth and do any bit for you. Man, run from this place if he's not God. Do not embrace the good news of the gospel. Do not become a Christian. Do not repent of sin because as Paul says, you are futile and still in your sins. If that's the true story, why in the world would you embrace that? We have something far more majestic, far more beautiful because the, his teachings, Jesus' teachings and all the scriptures from the Old Testament pointing to him to the New Testament pointing back at him say that the deity of God was in Jesus and that Jesus was always God and that God is always Jesus. And that he came, that he lived and that he died. So that's number one why it matters. It's everything for the rest of what you'll hear in December. If you don't camp out there, the rest of Philippians 2, 7 to 11, holds no weight. Second, if this is true about Jesus then, if Philippians 2, 6 is true, then the commands of God in the Bible should be celebrated like David celebrates them in the Psalms, not scoffed at or rejected or, or, or worried about. Because you learn, man, this is the, the fullness of deity who, who created all things. He's the prototokos. He's inviting you into life. He's not trying to keep you from life. Every time he lays before you, this is how creation was made. This is how it was wired. This is how work works. This is how your heart works. This is how your mind works. This is how your affections work. This is how your, 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 your worship works. This is how your marriage works. This is how your singleness works. No matter what he says, you're going, he's calling me into something. He's inviting me into beauty. He's inviting me into life. He's not trying to take from me. He's not trying to withhold from me. He's trying to actually give me generously from himself. Isn't that good news? So when God comes along and says, this is how sex works, man. This is how relationships work. This is how money works. This is how your heart works. This is how idolatry works. This is how you go, oh yeah, keep, keep telling me. Invite me in. Invite me in. You're the image of the invisible God. You're God himself. You designed this whole thing. You made this whole thing. Man, help me understand this. Now listen, I'm not saying the commands of God are easy. I would never say that to you. Commands of God aren't always easy. But I'm saying it's possible for you to delight in them if you understand rightly what their intention is and who's giving them. You can walk into them with grace knowing that Jesus is about leading you into life especially, most profoundly, in his advent. I mean, the gospel is the essence of that. I'm calling you to life free from sin. Life with me, adoption, grace, protection, warmth, goodness, kindness. So whether it be about your children, your money, your time, your singleness, your marriage, your work, those things are about Jesus lining you up so that you would know Finally, it transforms your worship. Knowing Philippians 2.6 transforms your worship. Now, some of you guys are going, why? Well, Jesus is equal with God, so all things are created by him, 
and they're all ultimately created for him. That's why at the end of verse 11, you're going to see it culminates in, in doxology to him. Right? You're not in the Bible. Right? It's not about you. Everyone's not going to celebrate in heaven how great was Mike Reed. They're going to say how great is Jesus. Right? Not going to celebrate anyone. Not going to celebrate presidents, pastors, teachers, prolific authors. We're going to celebrate him. All things are for him. So because they're going to do that, what is this test? The Advent tests the goal of your heart. Here's what I mean. It tests what's ultimate. Because according to Philippians 2, 6 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and other texts, Jesus is ultimate. He's deity. He's God. So, so what is your ultimate goal in everything? Is it Jesus or is it that your marriage is fixed? That you're freed from an addiction? That you get a new job? That you're healed? That you're... Insert that. It's a good thing to want a healthy marriage. You should be fighting for that. It's good to be want to be free from addictions and proclivities that will harm you and destroy you. Absolutely. It's a good thing to want to seek out a vocation that gives you life and joy. Those are not bad things. But when those are ultimate things, you destroy all things. But because Jesus is ultimate here, that's what he's saying in Philippians two six. Man. It, if you make anything your ultimate goal outside of Jesus, you begin to chase the wind because you get yourself in a cycle of moralism and behavior where you're trying to accomplish something where you just white knuckle it all the way until you get exhausted, frustrated, discontent, bitter, and ultimately you just lose hope. And, and here, here's where the gospel and religion shy away from one another. Religion says um, you're in timeout, right? You're not in timeout. Like God's not going, you're in time out. Once you fix your frown, once you clean up your act, once you get things to better, then you can come approach me. No, the gospel says, come now, come near, come when you're weary. This is John 8, Luke 9, John 11, Luke 9, Luke 12. All those different texts I just read to you. This is, this is the God, the preeminent one saying, come near. I'm gonna draw near to you in the advent all so that you can have me, hold me, enjoy me, worship me, and my, your ultimate goal can be found in me. So as the power of Christ in the advent begins to break down the addictions, begins to reshape how you view life and work and ministry and marriage and singleness and everything, all of a sudden you're profoundly informed by a God who is full deity, who comes in full humanity, who you can listen to and trust because he made all things. Like he doesn't have some subpar authority. Like he has all authority. I mean, this is why Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Right? In case you're thinking just earth, heaven too. Thinking just heaven, earth too. It doesn't matter what he says next. He could say, go start a farm. And every one of us should go start a farm. Doesn't matter. He has all authority. So I'm going, what are you about to say? What are you about to say? What are you going to say? What are you going to tell me? No one else holds that. And then Paul says, this is what he does. He comes at Christmas. Becomes a slave. Likeness of men. It's amazing. See, behavior, modification, and moralism occurs when Jesus is not ultimate in your life. We talked about this extensively in Galatians. Just came out of that book. It's beautiful. The gospel happens when Jesus is what you're after. That's the point of Christmas. Are you after him? Do you see him? That's what Paul's saying. Do you have a good theology of Christmas? So I want my marriage to be good. 
I'm, I'm saying that, I do. I want my marriage to be good. I want it to be deep. I want it to be lifelong. I want it to be enduring. So what is my first question? It's not give me pragmatic things to do. For me, it's what do I need to know about Jesus? What do I need to know about the Father? What do I need to see in him that reorients the way that I'm thinking and approaching and walking? It's for everything. So I can see his mercy, see his grace, see it, feel it, know it, understand it in such a way that it begins to affect how I see my wife, how I see my kids, how I see my job, how I see the the addictions and proclivities that, that enslave me. What do I need to know about Jesus? See, the story of Christmas begins with Jesus being equal with God and abandoning his sovereign position and then accepting a slave's place, and that's next week. But this is our servant king. This is our servant king. God, we need help. God, we just want to consider the meditations that you gave us. We just want to consider the, the story of Christmas from angles that you give us. We, we want to see Philippians 2, 5 to 11 in a way that transforms us. And there are a lot of men and women in this room that are broken, hurting, discouraged, exhausted. There's some of us that are just abusing grace, living in license. There's some of us who are legalists, thinking our good works earn and a merit and achieve for you what only Jesus Christ can give us in your advent, in your coming, in your life, death, and resurrection. So God, we want the meaning of your advent that, that did occur and your future advent that is real where you will return again to matter to us. God, we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need you to illuminate our minds to truth, to, to reasoning, to understanding. God, would you help us to leave today more transformed in the image of the Son because we were together. Might, might Christmas mean something to us? Might we start with divinity? And might we really understand that and see that and acknowledge that? And God, might that pave a beautiful pathway towards seeing you coming through the virgin birth and growing up and living and dying and rising. God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that you were God. and Thank you that there's hope because you were God and you are God. Thank you that there's hope for forgiveness of sin for any man or woman in this room this morning who wants it. Thank you that forgiveness can be had in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you that you say if we repent, if we turn from sin and turn to Christ, there's fullness of life. Thank you, Matthew. You say, all who come to me with a, a true, humble heart, I will not cast out. Thank you that the, the bidding in the gospel has come now. It's not wait. It's come near because you came near. Thank you for initiating. Thank you for coming. Thank you for giving us all that we have in the gospel of grace. We pray to you enjoy you more. In Jesus' name, amen.